Right. Okay, I'd like to thank the Sangha for this opportunity to create and deliver this talk. I tried to give it away to somebody else. Uh, we were hoping to get a naturalist who could come. And when I told them the title was Hawaiian Hiking in the Interdependent Forest, they told me that I really wanted forest bathing and that that's what they would present to us. Um, so here I am and here we go. Practice, practice, practice. Buddhists are always talking about practice. But what I want to know is, where is the performance? This is a quote from Robert Thurman, as used by David Loy in his book, Eco Dharma, if any of you want to borrow it. Um, you can have my copy. Um, Buddhist teachings for the ecological crisis. Loy here discusses how we as humans and Buddhists might respond to the humanly caused environmental changes occurring around us, which are creating great suffering for many species and even extinction. As we negotiate the world of the absolute and the relative, of sameness and difference, how are we to react to our experience of nature being radically disordered and in some cases discontinued? Here is Loy's formulation of the problem. Is a quote, it is not only that you and I are unborn, for everything is unborn, including every species that has ever evolved in all the ecosystems of the biosphere. From this perspective, nothing is lost when species, including our own, become extinct, and nothing is gained if our species survives and thrives. And yet that perspective is not the only perspective. We're reminded of the Heart Sutra's formulation, form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. We cannot avoid the paradox, although form is emptiness means that nothing really dies in an extinction event because there is no separate thing to die. Nonetheless, emptiness is form means that emptiness is nothing other than the inexpressibly magnificent world, which is rightly called sacred because it is to be cherished more than anything else." End quote. Loy then goes on to illustrate this problem of species extinction by discussing case 30 from the Book of Equanimity, Daswi's Kalpa Fire. Here a monk asks Daswi, when the great Kalpa Fire rages and the universe is destroyed, will this also be destroyed or not? And Daswi answers, destroyed. The monk then continues asking whether everything will be destroyed, and Daswi responds, everything goes with it. The monk then goes to Ryusai and asks his question again, apparently hoping for an answer more to his liking or understanding. Ryusai then answers, not destroyed. When the monk asks why this is so, Ryusai responds, because it is the same as the universe. Lloyd takes this koan as showing the two sides of a coin or the front and back of a hand, two, pers two perspectives of the same thing. The monk seems to want this to survive unchanged, but all things are open to change and mutually affect each other. We are interdependent. At the same time, there is not gain nor loss with respect to the emptiness of all forms. The opportunity presented by karma remains, and out of the kalpas fire comes the beginning of the next cycle. Just like out of a forest fire comes the next forest, unless humans interfere. I'm going back 
uh, I'm going to look at some of these issues of human intervention in nature and the resulting species extinctions by examining the forest and the workings and monkey wrenches in the workings that make a forest flourish or fail to thrive. To begin thinking about trees, imagine yourself walking right up to a tree until your nose is touching the bark. If you happen to be in New Mexico and nose to bark with a ponderosa pine, then you'll be smelling a rich aroma of vanilla. But up here in New Jersey, you will more likely be experiencing the inert outer covering of the tree, which, like our clothes for us, seems to have no intrinsic role to play in the operating of the tree. All of the action appears to be at the top in the leaves. We know they are green for some reason until they are not for some other reason, and that photosynthesis has something to do with this. So let's start with photosynthesis. Green leaves take sunlight, and with their green chlorophyll miraculously change it into sugar, which provides energy for the tree to grow. Bodies like our own have organs inside that do specialized jobs to keep our body running. These organs have specialized cells that keep the organ working. And each, shell has, each cell has specialized structures called organelles that keep the cell functioning. And within the organelles are more structures for dividing and accomplishing their work. Chloroplasts are the organelles in plant cells that are able to take the photon energy in sunlight and convert it into electron chemical energy which can then enter into chemical reactions needed to make sugar. And chlorophyll is the pigment molecule within the thylakoid membrane of the chloroplast that does this. Um, that's about it for the scientific terms, but a few more might come up as we go along. We have come a long way from our nose against the bark of the tree, or even holding a leaf in our hand. Carbon is an element in all organic compounds, which includes every living thing. Trees need carbon for their food making, sugar, and capture CO2 through tiny openings in their leaves. This along with water from the roots are the materials that combine with the captured energy from the sun in something called the Calvin cycle, which creates not only the sugar, but also the enzymes needed to continue this cycle. The dance of the carbon molecules as they go through this cycle is amazing to watch and well worth a four or five minute YouTube visit. Um, I will not go into the carbon cycle. You may all breathe more easily at this moment. <laughs> the tree upon which you are resting your nose is not just the architectural column that you are experiencing as connecting the roots to the leaves, nor are the roots merely the anchor for the sugar producing leaves at the crown of the tree. Rather, the tree is one continuous organism, with the water having to come all the way up into the leaves and the sugar having to go all the way down into the roots and beyond. All the tree cells need water and sugar, so all form a continuous transport system in contact with both the leaves on the top and the roots on the bottom. The tree in front of our nose is a continually running freight elevator intimately connecting all parts in this non-stop moving of goods. If you now move your ear closer to the tree, you might hear the hum of the freight moving, although our human ears are so limited in the range of what we can hear. All of our human sense organs are so limited in the range that we can perceive that most of the interconnections around us are beyond our direct experiential capacity. 
reinforcing a false sense. Reza, I'm very sorry to interrupt, but we've lost audio on our end. Oh. Maybe Zoom. Zoom a room. Can you hear anything? No? Yes? I think this is part of the uh, interconnectedness theme. <laughs> it's that false sense of independence. Ah. Got it back? Can you just put it same as system? Yes, now, yes, yes. yes. Go on. Okay. Thank you. Where did you end? That's, that's a tricky question because it, the audio is a bit spotty. So um, I would say continue where you are and we'll listen to the recording later. Okay. All our human sense organs are so limited in the range that we can perceive that most of the interconnections around us are beyond our direct experiential capacity, reinforcing a false sense of independence. Not only can our ears not hear the intercellular movements of liquids in a tree, but our visual field is not only limited to the outside surface of things, but also nothing smaller than the tiny letters on the eye exam chart. We are as well adapted to ex we are as well adapted to experience only fairly rapid changes in our environment. We are best at sensing change as it happens, but are also pretty good at a day-to-day -day change and maybe even a week-to-week. -week. Recognizing sameness and difference in a friend after a year or two of COVID-inspired absence is possible, but as the decades progress, we have little capacity to keep track of change. There are a number of trees as characters in the novel The Overstory, and one of these is photographed every year on the same day from the same angle by different members of a family for over a hundred years. This sort of recollection is exceptional, more than the life of any one photographer. But within a forest community, a hundred years is when an adult's life may just be beginning. The discovery of lenses in the early 1600s expanded our visual experience of nature, both into outer space and into the cellular makeup of all living things. But we still rarely feel the connectedness of these experiences with the microscope or the telescope. Seeing Saturn with its rings calmly resting in the eyepiece of the telescope seems far removed from the hectic world around me. We still experience trees largely by what we see with our naked eyes, trunks, branches, and leaves when they are present. On rare occasions, we may experience the roots when they trip us up on the trail, or a tree is upended by a storm or bulldozer. If we cut down a tree, we can still only see large structures like the growth rings in a cross-section of a trunk or branch. The growth rings also give us a sense of time, a surrogate for not being able to co-experience this with the tree. I want to discuss today three dimensions of the interconnectedness in a forest that we cannot appreciate with the naked eye, but which, when better understood, can help us better understand the incredible interdependency of our world, which very much includes ourselves. These three interdependencies are the life processes that occur inside a tree, such as the photosynthesis that we've already discussed, the life processes that occur between trees, and the life processes of species succession that occur over the life of a forest. 
We cannot normally experience what is inside a tree or under the soil of a forest, nor the many decades blending into centuries that mark the stages in the development of a forest. So we are going to take some time today to think about these things. We've seen one life process inside the tree as photosynthesis occurs in green leaves. In the fall, when this process becomes less efficient, as there are fewer rays from the sun, the tree reabsorbs the chemicals in the chloroplasts for use next year, thus ending the life of the green chlorophyll and returning the dying leaf to its non-working colors of reds and yellows. While the photosynthesis is working, water must be transported from the roots to the leaves, up to 300 gallons a day in some large trees. This is accomplished through the cohesive or sticky quality of water, which we can see in the surface tension of water when it can rise slightly above the top of a glass before spilling over. Like it's slightly mounded when you look at the side. The pulling up factor is the transpiration or loss of water through the leaf openings when the CO2 is being absorbed. In order to let the CO2 in, the leaf has to be willing to let a certain amount of water escape at the same time. As the exiting water evaporates, it pulls on the water molecules which are still in the leaf, one by one pulling up the entire column of water, which can be over 300 feet long, all the way down, all the way up from the roots. If water is readily available as in a rainforest, the more water that transpires from the leaves, the more water is sucked up from the roots. But water is also a limiting factor in growth, as sugar requires a constant supply of water. So the less water available to the roots, the less growth there will be in the tree. The freight elevator carrying water up and down, water up and sugar down, is really more like a very slow motion fire hose, its contents moving molecule by molecule. So the tiniest hair on the tips of the roots are connected to the thylakoid membranes inside the chloroplasts, inside the leaves, high up on the crown. The second connection we will examine, that of the life processes of the tree to its environment, extends beyond the limits of its own cells into the cells of extremely thin threads of fungi called mycelium, which permeate the root tips of almost every tree in the forest. In the 1990s, Susan Simar, and her book is here and is also available if anyone wants to borrow it, very readable. Um, Susan Simar initiated the study of the symbiotic mycelium that works in the rainforests of her native British Columbia. And we've had the good fortune to visit our son and his family in Seattle and see these rainforests, which are quite a revelation from the rather sparse forests that we have in New Jersey. Her results might show more numerous networks than our drier, rockier forests in New Jersey, but the same networks are in all forests to some extent. Like Indra's nets stretching between the interdependent beings existing at any given moment, these fungal threads connect almost every hair on every root to both the network itself and the roots of all neighboring trees. Several thousand species of fungus do this work, each with their own network and 
in many instances their own colors so that when you actually get into a place where there's a heavy network you can have blues and yellows and reds and uh, whites all sorts of colors um, each of their own network and often dozens dozens of different types of fungi on the same route creating hundreds of kilometers hundreds of kilometers of threads under a single footprint so as you're walking through the forest there are amazing unimaginable amounts of these fungal networks under your foot at every step the only evidence of their presence that we see are their fruiting bodies the mushrooms that we see on the forest floor we often think that mushroom is the whole plant itself but it's but a small and temporary appearance of what is permanent and extensive beneath the surface. The hyphae or hollow tubes in this network carry sugar and its carbon from tree to the fungus, which being underground has no chlorophyll or access to sunlight. The fungus then shares the surplus sugar with neighboring trees. So the sugar is taken out of the roots by the fungus used by the fungus for its own food but has a surplus which it then will carry to other plants around the forest um, the fungus is adept at extracting elements from the rock and the soil in exchange for the sugar from the tree provides back to the tree nitrogen and phosphorus among other chemicals some of the sugar from one tree can even be tagged to be carried to specific other trees it's been shown that the genetic children of one tree receive more nutrients through this network than non-related trees. The network also carries information about atmospheric conditions such as drought and reports of insect or disease invasions. Chemicals and hormones to deal with these invaders are also sent through the network. There's also cross-species cooperation in this sharing as seen between Douglas fir and birch trees, which is one of the um, research uh, projects that Simar um, describes in the book. The fir trees will ultimately get the greater share of sunlight, and so in the long run, they will have the greater longevity in the forest. But they share nutrients in the early years of the struggle just to survive. Cooperation is repeatedly the overall forest strategy more than competition. So many accidents can happen to end the life of every sapling. Only 1-2% to survive being hit by a fallen tree, eaten by a deer, beaver, or porcupine, robbed of sunlight by an encroaching Norway maple. That saplings of many species work together to increase any of their chances to survive. As with all interdependent beings, their best individual chance is to work together for the good of the whole. Simar's story of her research with mycelium networks providing communication networks among trees gives us a very human account of entering into the web of interconnections that we so easily miss as our busy lives only give us time to move from one surface to the next. But as we do hiking zazen or huayan hiking in the woods, we can feel ourselves becoming immersed in the multiple layers of interconnectivity unhindered by the barriers of bark or the forest floor or the conditions of any particular day or season of the year. We can put ourselves into the larger time frame, that of forest time, 
and through this get a better feeling for the forest as a living organism with many parts working together to develop over centuries in a succession of different configurations until a stable, sustainable community is attained. This is the third life process we will examine. The succession of plants and animals as a forest develops from open grassland to a tree-dominated community. We are not usually aware of the changing roles of different plants and animals in the successive stages of a developing forest because unlike trees, we do not stay in one place to maintain an observation, nor do we live long enough to see which trees make it past the first century and which past the second, and so on. How a treeless space turns into a forest is called the process of forest succession and depends upon many factors in the environment, especially the quality of soil, moisture, sunlight, and how disrupted the surrounding forest communities have been. Most of the forest in the northeastern United States has been cleared at least twice since the European settlement for farmland, timber, and fuel. Our area of northern New Jersey, from the hills to the west to the Palisades along the Hudson, is a recently glaciated area uh, within the past 10,000 years, exposing very old rock, very old, 200 million year old rocks, <clears throat> That's the Palisades, the rocks that are exposed in Central Park, uh, High Mountain um, in Wayne. Um, exposing very old rock at or near the surface. Because our resulting soil is often thin and poor with only moderate rainfall, succession takes longer and is less orderly. The soil in the unglaciated south of New Jersey has accumulated undisturbed for a longer time is richer and holds more water and thus sustains a very different tree population, such as the quick-growing pines of the pine barrens. In a deep encounter with the forest, we experience not only the interdependence of the fungal network of this space, but also the karmic threads developed over the centuries of the trees and the millennia of the rocks which find expression in this moment of time. The stages of succession are very simple. Begin with an open space having either some grasses as a meadow or no vegetation at all as a former farmer's field. The first stage arrives with the ground cover and shrubs that you would find in a right-of-way that the utility company might cut through a forest. And there's the four or five foot grasses and maybe eight foot shrub tall shrubs within that. The next stage is the growth of saplings of many kinds of trees over the next 20 to 30 years. Then the thinning out of this variety as the crowns of the bigger trees begin to cover the canopy at the top of the forest and thus limit the incoming sunlight for the other trees. Fast growing trees with large crowns dominate this stage during the next 20 to 40 years. Then trees become old enough to make seeds and a new generation begins. The first seeds come from neighboring forest communities, the second generation of saplings would come from within the trees of the forest. Then trees become old enough to make seeds and a new generation begins, favoring those that can grow in the reduced sunlight on the forest floor. So the first generation are sun-loving, needing trees, and the second generation are going to be ones that are shade-tolerant. In another 20 to 40 years, these are the trees that will become the climax species. Um, 
waiting to take advantage of an opening in the canopy when a tree falls or burns or loses its leaves due to disease or insects. Seizing this opening, these trees now grow above the others and gradually shave them out, establishing a stable cycle of plants best adapted to survive in this ecosystem, resilient to local disease and insects, while their shade-adapted babies grow slowly but steadily, often waiting decades as saplings, but always ready to replace their parents in turn, and in turn dominate the canopy. So in a mature forest, you might find um, saplings that are 20 or 30 years old and maybe only 10 or 15 feet tall because they're saving their energy for the moment when they're going to finally get enough sun to grow up. Most forests around us are in or approaching a climax stage of oaks and hickory, but are not as stable as previous ones due to more human interference. And this brings us to our last experience of the forest, our presence in and upon the forest as a species. Last Sunday, I went with Sagyoku to visit the Hutchison Forest near New Brunswick, which features 65 acres of one of the few remaining old-growth forests in New Jersey and it is falling apart. The 350-year-old trees, which were there in 1950, have all died in the last 40 years, and the 250-year-olds that remain are in danger. The forest has no impermeable boundaries that can protect and maintain it as a thriving community. As an urban forest, it is surrounded by many relationships not of its own making. And many of these relationships are breaking an essential mechanism of a healthy forest, the ability to reproduce itself and sustain a broad and balanced diversity of species among its plants and animals. Two of the main problems with all forests that have a high degree of contact with human communities are the encroachment of non-native species and the overabundance of deer due to loss of predators. The non-native plants that have flourished in our country do so because the limiting factors in their right, the, right, the non-native plants that have flourished in our country do so because the limiting factors in their place of origin on their dissemination are absent in our environment. They have very effective reproduction mechanisms built to succeed within the obstacles of their native limitation. But outside these limitations are so prolific that they overwhelm native communities and replace a balanced plant community with monocultures. They are then called invasives, as they introduce factors which do not enhance the community, but diminish it, and in some cases, demolish it. The species supported by the previous diverse plant community disappear. For every tree species that is lost in a forest, 10 other species disappear as well. The forest becomes merely a collection of trees, less resilient to disease and insects, and less able to maintain the interdependent links with the rest of its environment. New Jersey has many invasive non-native species. The bamboo that gardeners discard into the woods quickly chokes out all other vegetation and is so dense that no other shrubs or saplings can survive beneath it. The sharp thorns of multi-floor rows line many hiking trails, and you've probably been caught in it as you hike along, and form an impregnable wall if you try to go off trail. Japanese knotweed now dominates the banks of the river that flows through our county park. 
Norway maple grows faster and has more seeds than any other maples, crowding out the longer living but slower growing sugar maples. Loss of predators and abundance of browsing has created an overpopulation of deer throughout the Northeast. Historically, when prey populations increase, then the predator population also increases as they feast, controlling the prey population. And when the prey population drops, so does the starving predator population, as with wolves eating elk or caribou or deer. The populations keep each other under control. But large predators, except for humans, are rare or absent in the Northeast, and the deer populations have increased in number and range. Deer eat everything in the forest understory, including the saplings which are needed for creating the future forest canopy and maintaining species diversity. Without the next generation, the average tree in the forest increases, as in our area during the last 20 years, the average age has increased by the same amount. The average tree today is 20 years older than the average tree 20 years ago. Um, the forests have reduced understory and stands of mature trees, um, but no upcoming replacements to fill them out. The balance of succession has been disrupted. There are still big trees, but as they topple in the next few storms or infestations, you will see ever-widening gaps between trees and in the canopy. The deer are eating themselves out of a home and thus increasingly entering into our city streets and gardens. The Hutchison Forest was created with a preservationist contract. Legally, it must remain intact, allowing no changes whatsoever in the flora or fauna. This concept reflects our wishful thinking and has become disastrous. Preservationist was a very common ecological um, creed uh, in the beginning of the ecological and environmental movements in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and now much of it has uh, moved more towards a conservationist model, which I'll discuss. Any forest in contact with unrestricted deer or non-native species is being radically changed. The legal contract does not seem to deter them. The Hutchison Forest has now changed its contract after a long legal battle to a conservationist model, to do what needs to be done to conserve the established community of the forest, taking into account the evolution in the broader ecosystem, such as warming climate might not support all the same species. Conservation means the act of controlling, and where needed, the eradication of non-native species and the limiting of either the deer population or the carrying ability of the forest and suburban gardens to feed them. Hutchison has erected a 15-foot deer fence and eliminated all the deer within this enclosure. It's also eliminated all the non-native species within this enclosure and trying to get the forest back to some um, earlier state um, of 1950 when they first inherited the land. Maintaining such a conservation enclosure is expensive and feasibility of extension is very limited. Culling or killing the deer in a forest often just invites more deer to come into the area and eat the same plentiful food resources. A continuous or annual deer hunt can act like a predator would and keep the remaining deer from overbrowsing and degrading the habitat. So where does all this leave the Buddhist hiker? 
uh, next Sunday. Those of you lucky enough to be able to walk will be going on a hike. I'm not sure that I'll be able to join you as my um, foot is acting up at the moment. Um, but um, what should the Buddhist hiker with her or his nose pressed up against the tree do? We have discussed several ways in which we can expand our perception in the forest to appreciate and participate in the multiple webs of interconnectedness between the species and the environment at this moment as well as over time. We have used the meaning of the term organic to take us inside the organs of a tree and then inside the cells of these organs and then inside the structures inside these cells. All levels of interdependency that continue in the macro world as well with the species as organs in the forest performing essential tasks as the miles of fungal threads weaving about under every tree carry essential resources and information. And the forest itself serving as an organ in the larger ecosystem. The more we understand and experience these nets of Indra in the forest and our larger environment, the more we can experience our lives as interdependent and our actions as the intersection of karma, that is the opportunities arising from the past, and upaya, the skillful means most likely to reduce suffering through these opportunities. Our hiking zazen includes caring for the land that we hike. We can inform ourselves about non-native species and how to avoid and reduce their spread. We can inform ourselves about animal population imbalances like the deer population and how viable populations can be achieved. We can take a deep breath with our nose on the tree and begin to feel the mycelium entering into the soles of our feet and entwining into our legs. Thank you. Check and see how the heroes. Check this. I should talk to. No, this here. The, the, this is the microphone right now. Okay. Hello, everyone. Can you guys hear? Can you hear? You can hear. Great. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yes. 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 Okay. Can they say something? Please speak. Can you talk and say somebody, something. Somebody speak up. No, no, not hearing at the moment. Yeah, you disconnected that? Hmm? I see. It's disconnected. Yeah, it's disconnected. Yeah, the, the, the you disconnected something. Both. The no, both is disconnected. In the band. In the band. Something in the band. It's in black. I thought it was in that. Now talk and say something. Hello. Okay, hi, Kapoor. 
Is that a thumbs up? I guess thumbs up. up. Yeah, thumbs up. Three, 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 four. Okay, good. Good, good. Okay, so everybody can hear? Yes? It's good. Okay, good. All right, yeah, we, we apologize for the technical issues. We have to figure out why it's happening. But, uh, but thank you for the talk. Yes. Thank you for the explanation. And uh, we want to open it up and keep in mind, we don't have much time, we have about 20 minutes, but keep in mind that uh, what matters most for all of us is always the applicability, right? So, for example, walking in the forest is very different than walking in the museum, right? We're not just watching something, as Rezan was, was alluding to. We are there to be reminded of something, right? So it's great, it sounds wonderful, the forest does what the forest does, but the main question is, what is the forest teaching us about ourselves as human beings? Right? That's really most important for a practitioner. We're not tourists, right? So wherever we are, we're not tourists. And uh, so with that in mind, let's open it up and questions, comments, discussion, wherever it goes. Whether on Zoom or here. Wait, can I just respond? You respond. Maybe to help people get warmed up. Yeah, please. Um, the tourists is a good... Um, parallel because you cannot help but be a participant in the forest. Uh, you have no choice but to be a participant and sometimes we feel like in a museum that we're walking through a space that is going to be exactly the same regardless of what our presence is going to do. Um, but any time that we are in a forest we are an organic part of that and doing whatever we do while we're there. Go for it. <laughs> All right. Um, I thought it was uh, fascinating how the forest takes care of everybody else in the forest, how these fungal networks um, provide channels for nourishment for other parts and other plants. And, and I was just thinking, you know, look what we do to ourselves. Just project look your at, voice in that direction. Look at what we, what we do to ourselves, look at what we do to each other as human beings. Do we do that? Do we use whatever we have left and give it all to everybody else at all times, just naturally? And that's what's fascinating to me, is that this network is so, they're so interconnected that there's not, I know there's no thought process because our minds get in the way, right? But then, what is this underlying mind that just makes everything work together so beautifully? And that's, that's wonderful. Right. You, you won't find a self-concerned tree, but you will find plenty of self-concerned human beings. Yes. Right? And a self-concerned tree is concerned with all other trees. Self-concern in, in treehood or treeness is concerned for all. We think very highly of ourselves. And I think this is one of the things that we need to learn from a forest, not to think so much about ourselves as separated from others. That's most important for us as human beings. 
So if we can get a glimpse into that, that would be incredible. Right? Because that's the fundamental teachings of Buddhism. You're not who you think you are. Kaku, go. Yeah, um, I just kind of was hoping that we can bring it back to our, our Buddhist practice. And I'm fascinated by this idea. That all, this re- all this learning about plants and ecosystems, I mean, it makes, it's, it's amazing and it makes me feel a part of you know, everything, like, but interconnectedness. But it's also nightmarish and the invasive species. So the idea that these deer, these cute little deer that we love, um, are actually, you know, the fact that there is no, there are no bobcats or whatever to eat the deer, and then the deer eating the plant, and anyway, it seems like the, the organism is irrevocably damaged, and the idea of invasive species, I find that a little bit nightmare. <laughs> so there's a lot of grim information out there. How can we, how can we use our practice to understand what invasive species and the lack of predators? Correct. We can do anything about that, which I doubt we can. Um, there are programs for uh, working on non-native species. A friend of mine uh, is retired and goes into the great swamp of a little bit south of us in New Jersey every day and uh, pulls out the native, the non-native species that are there. And uh, it might seem like putting your thumb into a dike that's you know, exploding someplace else, but um, I think you can work with um, being a part of a larger system like the forest, um, like the Great Swamp, or um, my sister's involved in Wisconsin in um, keeping the arboretums. It's a big park in the middle of uh, the town, which uh, they uh, keep non-native species out of that. Uh, so I think wherever you are, you can take your little piece of whatever the forest or the park or whatever it is and um, work on it. Um, and you might be able to get involved in a larger project if that would work. Uh, what you can do about deer, I'm not so sure. Um, but you could um, uh, certainly not feed them. Um, I see people in a park near us who are continually feeding the geese and feeding the deer. And this is not helping either the geese or the deer. Uh, so there's a, a number of our habits uh, that we could examine and see whether they're promoting um, the health of the environment around us or whether they're adding to the disruptions that are taking place. I don't know if that helps. Uh, the nightmare um, is certainly um, always um, in the shadows ready to come out. Uh, but I think there's things that we can be doing that hold it at bay somewhat. So how, how can we use our Buddhist understanding to apply to invasive species or the lack of predators? Or like, how can we understand that in the context of all the other stuff that we learn? Um, do you want to? Right, Sugyoko wanted to say something, so yeah. It seems like inherently there's a lot of not knowing. So. Um, when it was decided to preserve forests, to leave everything, to not uh, um, do anything, that came from a certain um, intention to do good for the natural world. And um, there were all kinds of factors that weren't understood or weren't predicted. And so uh, it didn't work out the way, uh, according to what the good intention was. So um, 
So there's a lot of not knowing, and you, uh, there's a lot of making choices based on not knowing what the unforeseen repercussions are going to be. And that just seems inherent in the situation. Um, so I was thinking about um, our friend who uh, digs out, um, helps remove uh, non-native species from the great swamps. Well, they're using herbicides to do this. And as an organic gardener, and someone who believes that these chemicals are harmful to the environment and harmful to living things, get in the water supply, uh, we drink it, uh, and have all these ramifications. Um, they know all this, and this is the choice they're making because it seems worse to have the invasive species there, and the hope would be that we could stop doing this when there it's more under control, but it seems like there's a lot of not knowing and there's not a perfect solution. Uh, that, that the choices are made situationally based on the situation now and then the situation changes. So, um, so that's hard for me, but that's what it looks like to me. Kelly? Yeah, I have the same thought about, I guess, where our Buddhist practice brings us to this question of like native, non-native, good, bad, you know, and it's, it seems like there, you know, we could take an approach of like going to war almost. I think I saw the language of war in one of the articles um, about all this, and I'm not I think your, your point, Sikyoku, is, is like, where, yeah, where is the line? How do we approach this? And I, I, I appreciate you saying not knowing. I mean, this is, I think some humility and some humbleness is probably uh, needed in, in, in some form. So, I don't know. <laughs> there, um, one comment um, that if we don't act, that's taking an action. Um, since these um, situations are predominantly human created, uh, we are part of that human agency, and so if there is a, a non-native species that is uh, taking over a forest, um, it's there because of our intervention that put it there in the first place, and then its result is going to be because we didn't try to do anything to stop it. Um, the value choices, which is part of what I think Kelly's getting at, um, you know, which one is better, and so are we picking a favorite that's supposed to... Um, the problem with non-native uh, species is that they will become the only species. So if you want anything else, if you want a forest with a hundred species to be there, uh, you need to do something about the non-native species. If you let the non-native species flourish, the hundred species will disappear, and perhaps in some cases totally. Uh, there are a number of places in this area where there are the only examples of certain species in the United States, High Mountain being one of them. Uh, and if um, multiflora rose takes over the entire area and kills the rest of the species, um, you will be involved in that process that led to those species disappearing. Um, so it, it is. As, Sejoka said, there's a lot of not knowing in this. There's also a lot of our agency. 
right? Um, we are <coughs> agents in this process, and that if we don't act, we are taking a, we're taking an action. This is a short comment. So I'm, I'm thinking that in terms of Buddhist practice, if one were to get involved in um, taking action and working hands-on with this, um, one Buddhist aspect is paying attention. So uh, knowing that you don't know everything and that your knowledge is limited, but paying close attention and um, seeing what happens next. Just, yeah, just, just a brief comment too. This, I think what everybody is saying really just speaks to the fact that we, um, we compartmentalize everything. I thought of this when you were talking about the deer. We compartmentalize animals as cute or dangerous or this or that in relation to us only um, and have lost our own connection to nature. And so, um, because of this lack of connection to what's going on around us, we don't, you know, there is that not knowing, but there was an acceptance of that not knowing, and that was our interconnectedness, our own interconnectedness with nature. But when we think we know, we start adding things to it, we start doing things to it that are detrimental to it. So I was just thinking our connection to nature is really important, just realizing that, um, helping others to realize that might be useful or beneficial through our practice. Just, uh, yeah, two, two points kind of piggybacking off of that. I think in addition to a sense of not knowing, one thing we could bring from our practice to this is a sense of balance of then the question of invasive versus non-invasive species becomes less of a conflict and more of a striking a balance of you know the invasive species Yes, they're expressing their treeness, and it's not necessarily self-concerned, but it is at the expense of everything else. Of in its pursuit of thriving, it's suffocating everything else that would be there, and then it becomes one species, which also becomes a problem. Which in agriculture, of monoculture versus you know more biodiversity, of if it's just one thing and it catches a disease, that wipes out everything there. Versus you can contain the disease by growing multiple crops of it with all within a space and kind of contain it all. Understanding that sense of balance there, it's going, this isn't just, this just doesn't work here. And I see this in, in my line of work with, with wine and viticulture of going, the, the wineries and the vineyards that thrive more often than not are existing in a sense of deep interconnectedness with the crops that they grow in between the vines, even the animals that kind of live among the vines and they go, they search for things and they can tell you different things, eucalyptus growing, what have you. It's becoming more and more crucial year after year as the climate changes abruptly and it's, it's so fine a balance to kind of go with there, but it's something I had I went to a seminar on Friday uh, with a winemaker from Sicily and they grow their vines on the side of Mount Etna, which is an active volcano. And so they're constantly, uh, you know, something they said really struck me of, we live with the reality that every vintage might be the last vintage because you, you have entire plots of grapes that are 80 to 110 years old but are growing on top of 
there was a lava flow here in 1911 or whatever it is and the soil is rejuvenated by these nitrates in the lava but they live knowing all of this could just be melted away in a moment and I think that that deep sense of interconnectedness that we bring with our practice we regain it at least a little bit by getting our hands in the dirt by being around it and we do make these choices we might want to step away from from uh, you know making judgment calls or value you know risk analysis but I think there is no choice we have to move no hesitation on these things and that's a way to bring our practice to it I think your talk was interesting too where you talked about that stage of development in a forest and how it connects to actually it feels like it connects somehow to time right because the life of a forest is much more slow and developing right than our lives our lives are this compared to it so um just that sense of getting that sense of time well over time yes these trees are overshadowed by these but over time, as it grows, it's it's not. It's two. I know two. You said one or two percent um, of those saplings survive. survive. Right. Right. So over time, those saplings that do survive become the canopy. And yeah. I just thought that was really interesting too. Just the sense of time over overall for us and for the rest of nature is so different. Yeah. And I think that. Um, from the very, that, that first comment about forest bathing, um, there's a perception that to be a Buddhist is to somehow be in the immediate experience and that the immediate experience is all that matters. Yeah. Um, and that um, a problem with experience is that um, oftentimes it needs to be informed to be able to really get out of the experience what's available there to you or what might be most uh, significant about um, what your relationship with that experience might be. Um, so that um, I think as, what does this mean for us as Buddhists? One part is that we need to get informed about all these things in order to truly understand what it means to be walking through the forest, that we are interdependent creatures uh, who have these severe limitations on what we can begin to understand because of our senses, because of how short we live, uh, and that the relationship to the world around us, um, all of the karmic relations which are surrounding us and which um, um, create for our life the opportunities that we have at any particular moment, um, to begin to understand that web with any sort of uh, complexity to be able to work within it uh, requires this sort of understanding of our experiences. Uh, and that to just, I mean, not knowing can sometimes be an excuse for not knowing, uh, which is sort of um, an impediment that we sometimes have as Buddhists. Um, not knowing is always going to be there, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be going out and trying to find out as much as we possibly can. Uh, and then uh, keep in mind that not knowing is always going to be present. Anyway, thank you. We are going to wrap it up.
Okay, and uh, we will continue at another time, uh, or we will take maybe bits and pieces of that and uh, see where that goes. Okay?